Okay, okay. We've got five, Sammy, four, and your three, but two and one. Hey guys, welcome to the Red Room. My name's Sandy. And I'm Anya. This is our debut podcast. No idea what we're doing, but we're very excited to be doing it. We are currently sat at the Fuel Bar at Barry Central, which has been our home for the last seven years, and uh, it's the birthplace of Barry's London and Barry's UK. So the idea behind the whole the whole thing, right, Anya, is that we spend our lives teaching classes at Barry's. Obviously, we always say people come and start training at Barry's for one thing and then maybe stay for something completely different. And I guess over the course of this series, we're going to tap into that. Today's episode is a slight change of pace. Like we have a lot of fun and games, but this one is, is pretty deep, to be fair. Just a flag. There may be some triggers in there for some of you. We sit and talk to dancer and performer Sam Salter and the actress Davinia Taylor about quite a scary problem, but it's really common, and that is addiction. This one's a real eye-opener, I think, into what addiction is, why it happens, and what it can do to people. Sam is actually part of the Barry's family and little did we know that Sam was actually struggling with his recovery and had lapsed back into his addictions. I had no idea that addicts can be functioning and going to work. There was so much that I didn't know about addiction. So for me, this was incredibly educational. So let's go meet them at the fuel bar. So today on The Red Room, we've got two very exciting guests with some pretty inspirational stories. Sam Salter. Hello. Um, Sam, how long were you on our desk for? A couple of years, right? Yeah, just, just under two years, I think. Just under two years on our front desk. Yeah. But now you are, or you obviously always were, a dancer, performer, uh-huh. and now you're on the world tour of... Oh, Swan Lake. Swan Matthew Bond, Swan Lake, yeah. yeah. Which is amazing. And we've got Davinia Taylor, who's a very dear friend of mine, actually. I've known for a long time. Hello. Who is an influencer, an actress, and most amazingly, she's waving four fingers at me. You tell us. I'm a mother of four boys, all <laughs> age under 12, which in itself is a hit class that never ends. It's brutal. <laughs> Hardest job of all. Thank you for joining us. Was it last weekend or the weekend before? Davinia was celebrating a bit of a milestone. Ten years of sobriety. That's right. And you decided to celebrate it in the Red Room. Absolutely. Well, basically, I've got a group of friends that Annie, yourself, you know very well. And I've grown up with them. I've partied with them. I got sober with them supporting me. And I came up to my 10th anniversary and they all wanted to celebrate. And it was like, oh, what should we do? Where should we go? And I just thought, how about doing what I do best, which is getting my endorphins by doing a big hit class, like at a place called Barry's Boot Camp. And they all just went, what the F? I said, oh yeah, yeah, I'm not sitting watching you get drunk. I'm watching you sweat till you bleed. And it was just the best birthday ever. And they all turned up and they put in as best as they could. And, you know, I was so grateful for them to do that. And then afterwards, they celebrated with having a bottle of vodka, by the way. But but it was so nice to see everybody get out of their comfort zone for me, because it's normally the other way around. It's normally I have to still fit in with that, you know, sort of like 90s lifestyle and watch everyone get smashed and lubricate their vocal cords and you know I find it sometimes to this day it's 10 years but I still get a bit not uncomfortable just a little bit bored and me being bored is me being uncomfortable so hitting Barry's I got my endorphins I got my self-esteem and I also got to share it with my friends and you know what it was the most beautiful beautiful birthday I could have wished for I love that you call it birthday. Is that because it's like a rebirth? Yeah. Yeah, it is actually. And do you know what? It's bizarre because I I remember when I was like two weeks in and people were celebrating 10 years and I couldn't imagine it because you're so raw. And I actually kind of forget, you know, it's now just part of my, it is literally part of my DNA that I just don't drink, you know? I mean, I could do everything else to excess. I can exercise to excess, but it's not going to kill me. And I could work to excess and I could, I don't know, do the PTA to excess. But, you know, drink is my primary danger zone. And as long as I stay away from that and sort of keep an eye on everything else, I'm okay. My life is good. (laughs) What about that monologue? (laughs) Brilliant. I love it. It's so inspiring. Sam, how how are you? I mean, you know what? When you used to work for us Mm -hmm. and... I mean, it was relatively new to me that you were going through all of this stuff. You were working, and you were like in the depths of it whilst you were working yeah. for us at Barry's. And yeah. I had no idea at the time. Yeah. Which is crazy to think 
for me and also deeply worrying at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, I kept it really under wraps and for, I'm sure you did as well. Like uh, Not a lot quite of, so under wraps at the end. At the end. It was pretty blaringly right. obvious to everyone except me. Right. But yeah, but you were functioning, end, yeah. But functioning, yeah. but it really was... I was really hiding it to a lot of people. And this is my issue. This is why I was like, I didn't think I was an addict. I can't be an addict. I go do the hardest hit class in London, you know, like I'm not, yeah, it's fine. But it wasn't fine. And there were times when I was in a a real mess and I got clean when I, like, I think four or five months into working at Barry's and the difference I felt was just huge, especially with me taking class, but even turning up to work, feeling good, feeling healthy, feeling strong, but yeah, just to touch up on that, I think, you know, being a functioning addict, it's, it's, it's hard to differentiate, like, I have, I have like my shit together, so how can I be, be in, like, in this position, be at these parties, be doing all these things to my body? I'm not in trouble, that's why I kept telling myself. And also, a lot of the friends I partied with were like, it's fine, you just need, a, you just need a bit of self-control. And to me, self-control, I just had none. But what I didn't know is that I was actually addicted. I really was. I was in addiction. Like, getting clean was the best thing, hands down, the best thing that ever happened to me. Put a time on it. What, so when did you... So I, I went into, the, into recovery on the 31st of July, 2000, and just over two years ago. So 2017. And I got 18 months clean, so a year and a half clean time, a clean time birthday. I said, like, just picking up on that, my clean time birthday is more important than my actual birthday. Like, I love it. Mm. <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a great feeling. And then I relapsed this year, working away on tour. Uh, and I'm now back in five and a half months. So, yeah, back in. Can I just ask, so for both of you, was there like a pivotal moment that made you decide, like, right now I need to get my life in control? Or did someone intervene? No, I, I had, uh, I'd had a few interventions. First of all, like a group of friends who I drank with regularly told me that I was drinking too much. So that was laughable. And I think they were a bit drunk at the time when they told me. So then I started divorce proceedings and the court told me I had to get sober to keep my son. And that was pressure on top of it. So that sort of facilitated secret drinking because I couldn't deal with the fact that I was getting divorced. And then my son and my house and my car was, everything was going. And so the pressure, I mean, it is really not advisable to try and get sober while you're getting divorced and in a custody case because it's, it's pretty brutal but of course I don't do anything by half so let's hit it full time and then eventually after trying to moderate after trying to drink just maybe on the weekend trying to drink just maybe after seven o'clock after trying to drink just red wine not white wine I mean I've tried every single trick in the book hypnosis everything eventually my mum put me on a plane to South Africa where I got absolutely paralytic and got banned from BA which is rather rock and roll. They've since reinstated me, which is very handy because I do flights to Malaga, which is lovely. And I can enjoy the hospitality of British areas with my children now and again. But yeah, I was, I was really bad because I was having, it's like brutal panic attacks. You have a physical withdrawal from alcohol and it can kill you. You have seizures. And that's why I was desperate for alcohol. That's why I was kicking off on the plane because it was a matter of I will die. I didn't know, but that's what the panic is. You need that toxin in you for your body to function. And um, I mean, but by the way, I still did not believe I was an alcoholic at this point. I just had a marriage issue. You know, everything I said, the alcohol was causing this. And that's how the disease works. It takes over your thinking. It causes actual insanity, temporary insanity. I mean, we've both managed to arrest it, but it's always lurking in the background and it will manipulate you. And I think of it as it's just a disease that we've not figured out yet how to hack into. Like we've not figured out the cancer code yet because it evolves and it manipulates and it's exactly the same as addiction and alcoholism or whatever you're doing. It will sit and manifest in the back of your brain until the day you die, you know, and hopefully it doesn't take you that way. You just can't reactivate it. But so I got taken down to South Africa and then I was immersed in a 12-step program, which of course is all based on God and fellowship and me. I'm not at all about God and fellowship, you know. So I found it really difficult to sort of hand myself over to that. And I just needed, I just needed time away from everyone and everything and having to reprogram and detox, basically. I had to be put on all sorts of medication to bring me off the alcohol without me going into an alcoholic seizure and dying. I think you touched on something. Obviously, I'm going to ask you again, Sam, about your story. But the fact that removing yourself away from 
what was going on socially for you and like friends and the environment that kind of lends itself to drinking. I know obviously as a culture, people go out, they drink, lots of people do, and some people have a problem with it and some people have something that makes them not be able to control it. Was that what you had to do, step away from that and create an environment that was... Yeah, I mean, completely. I didn't realise I had to because I thought of these people who I parted with 24-7, by the way. It wasn't just like normal people you met in the pub. We're talking like animals themselves, you know? So I always like sort of like earmark what they were doing and, 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 and like, like you, you know, you, t- you party with people and they say, you, just, you know, just restrain a bit. But that wasn't happening for me. And since 10 years, loads of them have come into recovery themselves. I was just one of the first to tip to hit that rock bottom rather dramatically. But yeah, taking myself away from the environment, not through choice, I was forced. If my mum hadn't done that, I'd definitely be dead. Definitely, without question, I'd have drank myself to death or killed myself because it's a physical and mental pain that you cannot describe. I mean, I describe it like, you know when you have a dream and you can't run away? It's like that during the day, all the time. You're feeling like you're running but not getting anywhere which is apt scenes we're in this room surrounded by treadmills. But also it's like a, a frustration that you're screaming underwater and no, you can't articulate. It's like speaking a different language and you can't get it out and no one understands what you're saying when they tell you to stop drinking. You're like, I can't do it and you can't explain why. But as I said, it's something that science hasn't figured out yet. I'm sure they will, maybe the next 30 years, because it's the world's biggest killer. It causes cancer. It causes suicide. It causes depression. And it, the ripple effect is huge. But one day we'll find it and we'll be able to snip someone's DNA so it's never activated. Yeah. So you, obviously you're, you now have a circle of friends who are obviously there to support you with it. And if you're going through that issue and having to try and confront it and then get out of it, I mean, we sit with fitness the entire time. You have people who come in who want to get fit and then we'll start training. And, but then their best friend will be like, wait, you're training like three times a week? That's way too much. Why are you, why are you training that much? Because, and I always say, it's like it's ho- you're holding up a mirror to them and they're not doing it so they feel bad. So then they'll start telling you like, you shouldn't train that much because they're not. In the same way as for us, if you have a drink, it's like, oh, come on, have a drink. Why aren't you having a drink? It's because like I'm having one, so I feel bad for having one. Maybe I should get... Absolutely. That, exactly. that how, yeah, that's how it works, right? Absolutely. Safety so, in numbers, isn't Exactly. It? So the best thing for an addict to do is speak to another addict who's a little bit more, got more sober time than them. And that's all of a sudden you'll get pulled back, you know, because for us, it's life and death. For anyone else, it's a hangover. Mm-hmm. What about you? Uh, you talk about life and death, but I know you have a your story is an incident, isn't it? That, uh, that pushed you into recovery. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was my rock bottom. It was just I can remember it clear as day. I'd gone to a festival and I'd completely ruined, ruined myself. And then the following week, it was my sister's birthday on the 30th of July. And I went out and I was like, I'm not going to do anything tonight. I'm, this is it. I'm changing. Bearing in mind, I'd said this for about three years. But every week I was just going around. I was like, no, do you know what? I'm, I'm done. And I can remember just that urge. It all started with a drink, mm-hmm. um, like it always does. And then I just had this urge. And I remember I was in a club. And as soon as I did that first bump of whatever it was, I actually even left my coat in the club. I was so impatient. I went to a, a house party. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even be bothered to get my coat, which was in the cloakroom. I just, I just left. I was like, no, don't need it. Leave the coat here. I'll figure it out another day. And then I can just remember, I, I did this drug that I never thought I would do. And I used to watch all these videos on Netflix, on YouTube, about all these drugs that ruin your life. And I was like, I would never, never touch that. And I did. And that was what sent me into recovery. I was so... I can just remember feeling... Um, I was suicidal, like... Numerous, numerous times. I, I, I literally got to the point where I'd done counselling. I tried just drinking. I tried leaving my ID at home. I would go and do a show in London and I'd leave my ID at home. And then on Saturday night, I would go and I would go home and get my ID and then go back out. It was just the pool. I, I was, it was just such a, it was such a mess, chaotic. It was chaos. Put my sexual health in danger multiple times. I wasn't turning up to work. I didn't care, I was lying to my friends. And I had, I felt like I had no way out. Like, I didn't know what to do. I was so lost. On the outside, I looked pretty fine. I hid it incredibly well. Towards the end, it was starting to show a bit. But then, yeah, I can remember calling this guy um, who I'd spoken to at a party like six months before. And I said, oh, here, have a, have a, one of my drinks. 
And he goes, oh, no, I don't drink. And I was so confused. I was like, what? <laughs> I don't drink? What is this wizard? You're crazy. <laughs> Evil man. <laughs> and he goes, oh, I'm in recovery. I'm in a 12-step program. And then that just planted the seed. Of course, I was like, all right, have a good night, bye. And, you know, went off to my party. And then he just came into my head. And I was, and I called him the next day. And I said, there is no one like me in the world. I have this. I do this. I, I do this when I'm high. I do this when I've had a drink. And he said, that's exactly what I did come to a meeting with me on Friday. So then I went to this meeting in London in Soho and it really changed my life. You were going in ready, right? And you were mm-hmm. kind of like, your mind, your mind was right and you actually reached out to, yeah, to, that, friends, to that guy. Yeah. I was, when you were I was pro- dragged, you were dragged screaming quickly, right, and were, literally sent to the other side of the planet. Because <laughs> yeah. that's you know, I, how I roll. <laughs> I remember that. So what is fascinating for me is, you know, I was very young when you were going through all of this and in my mind, you were like so together. Wow. Because you, because I didn't know you well enough to know yeah. the inside story. And it was, you were aspirational because you were living in this amazing house and you had yeah. this career. I would, you were the party girl. But that was that cool. Was, yeah, but that was kind of my identity. I thought, well, I can't really, because I mean, I've got a very successful, I had very successful parents. My mother was really, really hardworking, brilliant hairdresser and set my dad up in a company. They're multi-millions. I mean, and the conversation was always about being the best, being the best. Mm. And do you know what? I wanted to be an actress and I didn't get any support from them. And it was like, well, that's a stupid career, you know? And so I was always on the back foot and you, it was a case of, you need to go into business. You need to do X, Y, and Z. I thought, I'm really crap at it, you know? And so I always had this, whatever I was doing, it was never good enough. So I thought, do you know what? I can friggin' well do. I can drink. Because I learned that very young because I'm from like this Scouse sort of like Irish background and you, everyone in their family drinks and you have a good row and that's how it is and that's just normal. So that was like my sort of heritage. And then when I came to London and every night's Saturday night, you know, and I embellished myself into this huge sort of party society. I tattooed myself to the biggest party animals in London, super fashionable, super cool, super funny, super magnetic. And then I got stuck into it and I sort of became my own worst enemy and my own sort of like, like almost like a parody of myself, you know, and it was pretty quick because it went from fun to needing to drink within sort of like about four years it it really kicked off and and then after I had my baby as well I think hormones played a huge I mean I had IVF as well which often kicks off hormonal imbalances and depression etc so and then I had postnatal depression and the only thing I knew to get rid of anything when you feel uncomfortable was to have a drink and then that exploded so pretty much after I had my son the depression kicked in massively I had no sort of like bond with my first child at all because of course the alcohol came in and everyone turns up with champagne and you know I couldn't wait to get back out there to what I knew best they say it's a disease but socially no one thinks of it as a disease that's just manifesting there like I remember when my mum was in her 20s she got breast cancer the first time and it was all very hush hush because it was the breast you don't talk about the breast you know but now pink ribbons are everywhere but that was, what, 30-odd years ago? So things are changing. But I think for the addict, we need more research on it. And we need to understand what in that epigenetic code triggers, say, even in twins, one twin to act out and mm. one to be a perfectly sensible accountant. Why, why is that? What's causing this mischief? But also, you know? the perfectly sensible accountant might be battling the demons that you two have both had because we had no idea about Sam. I had no idea about you. Yeah. Um, so people can function day to day they can be coming into the studio running on a treadmill looking perfectly okay but actually knowing about addiction it's so easily hidden mm. like how did you I mean obviously D for you it's a bit more oh, open of course, yeah. but Sam how on earth were you functioning day to day and going to work and I hid it all I would just hide it all through social media I wouldn't I would be very selective with who I hung out with I would always cancel on people I can remember always cancelling because I'd either be asleep or I just didn't turn up. You know, my best friend um, was going to take me to a really lovely hotel for my birthday and I just didn't wake up. Just picking up on something I heard earlier, it's really, it's really strange, actually. Whenever I tell people I'm sober, they can understand the drugs. You know, they're like, OK, so you don't want to touch drugs, that's fine. But I just can't understand. Can't you just have one drink? <laughs> can't you just have one drink at dinner? You know, like a, like a Sunday roast with your mum, like have one glass of wine. And that question really bugs me because, for me, alcohol always leads to drugs always and yeah sure perhaps I could have one glass of wine on that Sunday with my mum but then the following week I'll go oh do you remember that glass of wine I had and I was absolutely fine maybe I'll have two oh okay maybe I'll go to a pub the next month I'll have a bottle then I'm right back I mean that's what happened in my relapse I thought I was saying to it's really earlier I, you know I thought I could handle moderation and one drink led to another to another 
you know, once too many and a thousand is never enough. That is literally yeah. the way it is. And um, and it's not worth the calories, is it? Let's no, no, it. Not <laughs> much, right? Unless you're going to get smashed. What's the point <laughs> yeah. of drinking it? Someone says to me, why can't you just have one? I was like, what for? Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we were talking before we came on, on air. Is that what you call it? Come on, you on air? We started, <laughs> no, we're not on air before we started this thing about how to have a bit of a heavy night on Tuesday night and then I was like is that a problem to talk about it and do you guys and then you have people like me who then well you know why can't you have a single drink or whatever is it difficult to talk to people who obviously don't have the same understanding about what you guys have been through and that kind of no I mean I, I quite like educating people and explaining it because it is a little bit bizarre because it was bizarre to me and I'm a bloody alcoholic you know and I've got alcoholics throughout my whole family but you know to be able to identify because I I mean the trouble is when you've got all like uh, the 12 step programs it's all very hush hush and there's no PR around it there's nothing seedy or dark about it they just because it's a non-profit organization you're not allowed to talk about AA or NA they don't want PR because they think that'll implode it and it takes away the anonymity of it so there's no banners everywhere to advertise it like you would Barry's or whatever Mm -hmm. or like it's not a normal sort of like multinational company there's no sort of PR around it so basically no one knows about it no one understands how it works and no one understands the rules unless you've been in there i mean for example people don't ever know that there's a group for the families of alcoholics because it affects them just for them not for me i can't go there because i'm not like a child of an alcoholic or the wife of an alcoholic you know so but if i was there is a there is a place where you can go and you can learn how to deal with it yeah i guess you can ask all the questions where like you know what can you talk about can't you talk about what's sort of the i mean i I don't i mean he's pretty he's pretty new into it compared to me and i i I don't mind talking about the rooms at all what they're going to do kick me out you know they're not going to do that of course not but that's that's a mysticism around it which i think sometimes can put people off they think it's like this underworld or this this cult and it's not it's just a group of people in a room talking about how the hell they get out of this mental labyrinth and, and having people that support them that have been exactly. through the same thing and also having a good old laugh about it because they are the funniest places in the world oh my god so I funny. mean hysterical yeah. I mean honest, honestly the humour that's in there dark humour dark <laughs> sick humour which is great and it's very British you know yeah. so yeah. you know it's not all doom and gloom of course you get people coming in, in broken crying and everything but they're in a safe place it's not like you're seeing someone in a pub at the, the wits end you know you're in a safe place if you're surrounded by fellow alcoholics it's the only place you going to get sympathy you know but no getting back to your 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 point no I I think it's good that you talk about it and you ask questions you know it's like if someone has a a disability they want to talk about it they don't want to just be shunned and stared at and assumed you know I mean it is a gateway for me I I, I would not risk having one sip of alcohol because it might just open up something in my psyche that's crazy it's an insatiable craving it's like having an itch it's like having prickly heat you just can't stop scratching. So I'm best not to just, I'm best not, not to even risk it. Yeah. You know? So being around it, so obviously your friends, you mentioned that they all had a big night and you yeah. were there with your kombucha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How is that being exposed to that environment? Are you not? I'm not, I'm not tempted. I mean, I'm just likely to get bored quicker. That's all. I'm not tempted to, to get involved because I've got too much to lose. And I know now I'm like coming up for 42. I know I don't have the detox facility to not to handle the hangovers because even people who aren't alcoholic and they have a big night, they are out for a week. So there's no way I'm ever going to go back to when I first started drinking at 17 and feeling sprightly a day after. It doesn't happen, you know. I'm totally different now. So if this fantasy of it's going to be like it was back in the 90s is not happening. I know that. I have that realisation. The only thing is, is like pe- when people start chatting and you've all been there you've all been to a wedding or whatever when you've had to drive and you get all the drunken chit chat it's yeah. just like that and you know you just walk out you just well, it's you, you learn to put that boundary up as i'm bored sorry guys but i love you dearly but i'm off to bed do you know what the crazy thing is as a as an alcoholic or an addict you have this sort of like inner monologue telling you you have to be there you have to entertain you have to be the life and soul of the party if you leave now everyone will judge you they'll think you're antisocial. do you know what as soon as people have had three drinks they don't give a shit if you're there or not because they're having the time of their lives so as soon as you disappear they just don't notice you're out of their peripheral vision and you've gone and it's about taking down that ego that no one actually cares because they're doing their own thing and you can just step away get on your train to London in the morning, leaving your mates puking up in the bathroom, which is what I did. Mm. So quite a nice feeling. (laughs) Do you think you've replaced that addiction for health and fitness? I've not replaced the addiction. I mean, I've 
I use fitness and health and well-being as a way to sort of like, okay, there's like this saying, um, you, your genetics load the gun, but your lifestyle pulls the trigger. Okay. So what I know is with my genes, I'm genetically predisposed to have a very good uh, facility to detox alcohol. I, I don't get sick when I drink. I don't get woozy. I can keep drinking. So my tolerance is really high. But I also have this epigenetics, and we don't know quite what epigenetics is. It's kind of like inherited trauma or inherited habits from my family. I don't know whether it's my mum's side or my dad's side that has come down that has forced me to, in any situation, crave alcohol more. And we, we, science just is trying to tap into that, but they just don't know yet how to, how to earmark it. So together, I've got a perfect storm to be an alcoholic. So I know that through my genetics. And you can see my genes. I, I carry a COMT gene, which basically predisposes me to be alcoholic. But if I, if I can silence those by doing exercise, by eating food that makes me feel good and not tired, like if I avoid gluten, if I avoid refined sugar, I don't get that dip and I don't get that lethargy which often if I feel lethargic that'll trigger me to want to have a drink because that used to give me energy oh, oh, interest. how often does that happen like I'm just sitting here watching you guys and like do you still have it's like a daily thing where you're like oh I wouldn't mind a drink so it depends. I mean, if God, if you're in the south of France and everyone's drinking rosé or yeah. I'm in Ibiza or whatever and you just think, oh, God, that would be good. I've just got to press fast forward. Yeah. I know exactly what will happen at seven o'clock the next morning right. and what right. will I be doing. Yeah, and I always have to think about that morning. And I'm like, I know that tomorrow I'm going to feel great when I wake up and I've not had a drink. Yeah. But I just remember. And also to remember how bad it would get for me, not for you guys having a wine. I know where I'm going to end up. Yeah. You guys won't end up like that. So it's just to remind myself, but I haven't had... I've, thankfully, I've not had a, a, a craving really in, in quite a, in quite a while, quite a few months. Summer's a big one for me. It, it's not a craving; it's just like, God, why me? <laughs> Wouldn't this be better if I had a glass of wine? Or, I mean, let's rephrase that: if I had a bottle of wine, you know, because a glass is not going to touch the sides of me. But I just can't. It's like people who've got who are allergic to peanuts. You oh, know, yeah. I bet they want a Snickers, but they can't have one. You know, and it's as simple as that. It's just a mental thing, though, as well. Like, I feel sometimes so out of place with a Coca-Cola and everyone's got a gin and tonic. It could be the same glass, but I feel out of place. I don't feel like I'm part of the group. It's just a mental thing. The only thing I can think about is pregnancy, and obviously you can't drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. And just that, for me, not being able to do something suddenly made me want desperately to have a glass of wine more or a vodka rather Mm -hmm. than just a soda. So it's... The idea of not being able to do something kind of brings anxiety out of me. And obviously for you guys, the repercussions are much... You have repercussions at the end of the day. Me having a glass of wine isn't going to result in me not turning up for work the next day or Mm -hmm. like losing my children. Yeah. I guess that is what... It's the balance, isn't it, of what you could... Isn't that the trickiest thing, though? The fact that you don't have that, therefore you can't press fast forward... In the same way mm-hmm. these guys can. Well, we've but, got the we've got the backstory. But you've had to go we, yeah, through we, that. Yeah, so the only way yeah. you can do that fast forward authentically is the fact you've done it and you've yeah. lived it and you know where it's going to end up. Mm-hmm. So you've got just everything there to try and help you to not. And the trouble is sometimes your your fast forward is just well I blacked out. Right. God knows what happened, you know. And you hear that so many times. I blacked out. I don't know what happened, but I've crashed my car. I've done this. But I don't know what happened, you know. And people literally don't know what they've done for people listening who are like maybe sitting there go well I I get home after work and I'm like I I need a drink whatever but what what would you say some advice would you give them to I mean I I think there's a massive drinking epidemic I think everybody has access to it and it's socially acceptable and it's on the increase and particularly women now are socially acceptable to to just say it's wine o'clock you know it's wine o'clock and you know like it or not we don't metabolize it the same as men we're not as big as men and you know we've got hormones to deal with as well and massive like risk of depression and it is an inflammatory ingredient no matter what they say the government gets huge amounts of money from it and from cigarettes and you know it is it is it's toxic it actually gives you brain damage for a certain amount of time and you know, you don't know what the hell is it's doing to you personally. And if if you can sort of think of it as almost like a... If you could get a, a wine... that They do have wines out there that don't have the sulfates in, that don't have the sugars in, you know? And maybe if you could buy something that is a little bit more expensive and you do use it not as frequently, you don't have to end up like me. So I try to do that by, by like a bottle of £6 bottle of wine or something. And I, I don't know, a couple of years ago 
maybe like drink one bottle every couple of days. No, not very much. But then I was like, you know what? I, I, I want to cut down. So I was in, instead of buying a six pound bottle of wine, I'll buy a 15 pound bottle. Mm-hmm. And there's no way I'm buying a, a few of them a week. Yeah. But then obviously you're just nicer. So you think, well, you know, I am going to do that. So you end up just spending more money drinking the same amount of wine. So then I was like, well, no, I'm, I'm going to go back to drinking the really six pound yeah. bottle, which I don't like anymore. So that was my next thing was I'll just drink wine I don't like. I'll go back to the six pound bottle or the five pound bottle, which is actually very nice. I have one glass of that and I'll be like, ah, that's it. I think once, so that was my that was my not that I was. I think if you just put as many obstacles in your way, learn as much as you can about what you're actually putting in your body, yeah. that might help. It might help you because it's not just oh, it's a treat. I mean, the people I hate it when people go give my kids sugar and say it's a treat. Mm. So it's not. You're messing up the gut microbiome. Yeah. You're probably send, giving them a hugely addictive food, and it's inflammatory, and it's going to send one of them absolutely crackers, so the other one punches them. Thanks for that treat. <laughs> you know, and that's the headmaster. And I'm like, well, you know, well, that's another thing. It's about culturally acceptable. Yeah, culturally, so it's, like, it's culturally not a treat. acceptable. Theoretically, yeah. alcohol is culturally acceptable. Cigarettes used to, be, you know, cigarettes yeah. used to be, yeah. and then but you fitness, get educated well, on them. Fitness. When we opened Barry's seven years ago, it, the amount of people I would speak to who'd be like, "Oh, my friends are telling me I'm working out too much." I go, "How often can I work out?" And I'm like, I "Come like five times a week." And I go, but what? An hour a day, five I times know, a week. And I was like, "It's an hour a day." Like, yeah, what's wrong with that? Like, well, I know my friends are telling me I'm overtraining. But drinking's yeah. fine, smoking's okay. Yeah. Uh, McDonald's sugar, is great, it's another sugar, treat. Sugar's yeah. everywhere, yeah. and yet fitness. Vegetable and, oil, the whole shebang, right. it's, it's everywhere. I mean, we are literally pumped full of inflammatory things that make you feel like shit. And of course, you're going to want to drink because you've got nothing in your artillery to fight it off. You're just one big toxic sponge, your liver's screaming out for anything, and your brain's knackered because it's sick of detoxifying, you know? Yeah. But I mean, that's just a whole nother subject. But that's why how I stay sober, by keeping myself super clean. I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this who are relating and haven't been able to kind of admit it to themselves that they have an issue. Because obviously these things, are, like you said, it's, there's a stigma and no one really talks about addiction. I don't think I've had an honest, frank conversation with an addict about the feeling or the impulses or how they've sought help. What would you say to those people who are maybe sitting here thinking, oh, I have a drink, but that drink turns into three bottles, but I don't think I have a problem. Maybe I do have a problem. What do they do? Oh, if you've got to control anything, you've got a problem. That, that's it. If, if you think, right, I need to control myself drinking or, or whatever you're doing, or I need to just like monitor myself, you've got a problem. Yeah, I just think being as honest as you can and saying, if, you, if you're like, I can't, I can't go out without taking drugs and it's making me unhappy. Like I'm really severely unhappy doing this to myself, but I can't stop. Then I would look into it more serious. It's, it's hard to like, to find the line. Like maybe someone just needs a bit of self-control in their life. If you're unsure of thinking you're an addict, because a lot of people think of addicts as druggies on the street with no job and heroin and all that, but that's not. Actually, you can be an addict in so many other ways. You can be a sex addict, you can be a sex gambling addict. addict, you can be a shopping addict. Yeah. You can be codependent on mm-hmm. other people. I mean, literally, there are so many groups for everything. So I think you can actually things. be addicted to groups. I think there's one of those. <laughs> yeah. Can you believe it? People have <laughs> so, to too well, many meetings. So I would say, I would say, meeting about a meeting. I mean, we are in the best place in the world, but we, there are Barry's addicts. and I, I mean, I'm a Barry's end. addict, so maybe I have an yeah. issue with Barry's. I don't feel good if, unless I do Barry's. Like, if I don't do I, Barry's, I, I, I have agree. a guilt. But, I mean, you're literally changing your hormones. You're making yourself feel strong. You're giving yourself endorphin. But you don't get a terror come down. You don't crash a car in someone's bloody front room. Do you know what I mean? Where do people go? What do they do? I mean, if it was... One of our Did you ever crash clients, a car into someone's front room? No, I was thinking more George Michael. Oh, that okay. was, but that oh, was Snappy right. Snaps, wasn't it? <laughs> what, he crashed him. into Snappy Snaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course, bless him. God rest his soul. I mean, just classics. Oh, dear. It actually shouldn't laugh. It but, shouldn't laugh because no, no, you know it took what? him in the end. That's the thing. That's it what t- I it takes say. him in the end. I mean, look at him. Super successful, creative guy. It still got him. And why? Oh, he had everything. Well, obviously not. Someone well, was also, missing. He didn't have sobriety. People laugh. At yeah. people's misfortune and so you look at people like you know Amy Winehouse George mm. Michael yep. all these things and she became ridiculed by society yeah. not help no one picks that out and thinks right we need to help that person instead you have pictures of someone falling out of clubs right. or society kind of laughs even in groups of friends like I think if someone's got something going on initially it becomes the butt of a story for everyone yeah their friend they, they don't until want to someone their, sees that it's their a, party body do they like they don't want their friends to become boring and like you know Inverted commas, inverted commas there, like boring. Oh, you're boring now, you don't drink. 
what? Like, no, I'm not. And I'll tell you what's boring, repeating yourself 20,000 times and yeah. then not being able to get up tomorrow or just crying for the next three days. That's right. boring. Right. To be honest, isn't it? Yeah. And so I'd rather be the sober person who can do X, Y, and Z and literally power through a night without sleep because I've got a screaming baby and still be okay in mm-hmm. the morning. You know, but it's people funny, forget, yeah. people just see that snippet of you at a party mm-hmm. and assume that's you. You've got another like 20 hours. Right. I would always life. take a Barry's when I first got clean. I would always take a Barry's on a Sunday morning. And I loved it. So I was like, <laughs> I know that all those guys, you know, I know like sliding door situation where I could have been and so easily could slip back to. But I'm most grateful on like a Sunday. That's like my yeah, most grateful day because yeah. I'm like, a little bit smug. I feel great. Yeah, yeah. smug, isn't it? Yeah. How are you feeling this morning? No, I feel great. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, where do, you, where do you go to get help? Like what is the first step I mean, to get help? Well, for me, for me, I'd probably, if you're really, if, you, if you're desperate, obviously you get in touch with AA, NA. The whole anonymous setup is great. But I mean, the trouble, I get a lot of DMs in my Instagram. It's like, I, you know, I, I've tried AA and I can't do it. But I mean, I think maybe if you try cleaning up your, your diet and looking at your genetics and being able to read it on paper, if you've got a certain predisposition for alcoholism or addiction, you know, sometimes you have to read something and go, OK, so it's not my fault. Right. Now let's try now let's go to my doctor. Now let's, let's, I mean, you could try antabuse. I tried that. It didn't work, by the way. I drank right the way through it and just puked up a bit more. But, you know, some, it's different, it's different strokes for different folks. The biggest success rate is going through the rooms. Mm-hmm. And that's like Definitely. talking therapy. And it's free. Remember that. You don't have to pay. You just have to turn up, sit your bum on a chair, grab a cup of coffee and listen to everyone's stories and just hook onto someone who you resonate with. But that didn't work for me. You know, initially I had to go, I had to go into a facility and be, have it, Force fed down my throat for three months. Was that in South Africa? Yeah. So did that work the first time? Did you? Yeah. I guess that was. But I mean, I'd done rehab before. I'd right. done the priory and all that. And right, okay. I mean, with there, they just take your money and you know, literally, it's exactly the same program as a twelve-step program, except you're just incarcerated. I mean, I just literally walked out after three days and went to the pub. Right. Said, "I'm all right now. I'm fine. I'm just gonna have red wine. I'll be all right now. Bye bye." Because that's the thing. If you're getting messages from people who are going, "I've tried all this stuff, and it's it's not worked." have gone through it and it, for it to not work the first time or the second time or the third time whatever. it was about five times I went, I went around and so around it, it, it will work eventually right it, it will, gets you better to find yeah. It. yeah because I mean, a lot of it sounds like absolute Chinese doesn't it when yeah. you go in eventually yeah. God, it's just through us most yeah the, like, God, God, the God, God thing God. I, I struggle with because a lot of it is handing over your life to to the power of God and all right. this palaver and it really frustrates me because so many people just can't get God because we don't because the big book of AA was written in the 30s and it's not kind of relevant anymore you know you've got different religions and you've got different belief systems and I think a lot of it for me it's really handy to have this emerging science with epigenetics and I'll, I'll give you an example about epigenetics it's a, it's a bit brutal but I was reading about a study that they did in New York last year and basically it's um, it was a rat model so you've got a male rat and every time it was, uh, it was in like a cage and it was given an electric shock every time they pumped this smell of cherry blossom into its cage. So eventually, every time, it, every, every time the, the smell was pumped into the cage, the rat got an electric shock. And this went on and on until eventually when you just pumped the smell into the cage, the rat shook even without the electric shock. So it would become conditioned, which is fair enough. What's really interesting about epigenetics, bearing in mind this is a male rat, two generations down to its grandson, whenever the grandson smelt cherry blossom, it shook. So that's how epigenetics works. So that grandson doesn't have a clue why it shakes when it smells cherry blossom, but it does. And there's now studies coming out about people in the Holocaust, people who are in the Twin Towers, their children being born with extremely low uh, cortisol levels, which leads on to all sorts of depressions and everything like this. So, I mean... The stuff you're born with that you just don't know, so you can't blame yourself that you're a bad person, you're an addict because you're excessive. There could be something that's three generations ago that happened to your grandfather, and that this is a subsequent result. So, I mean, for me, that was fascinating, and I think we're on the cusp of something, that, so it doesn't necessarily have to be God. But right now, that's all I have to offer you, you know? That's all I can give is my story and see if you resonate and just hold on tight and just don't pick up the first drink. Well, your stories are incredibly powerful certainly I feel like I've learned something that I had no idea about like you hear about addiction but I had no idea it's very complicated it when you see it from the outset you think oh someone just drinks loads of alcohol it's their own not 
sounds like a really narrow-minded way to think, but you're like, they just drink loads of alcohol, they have a problem, but they can't keep in control, and, you know, that's just something that's spiralled out of control. When you see it that way, you think that it's really not their fault, in the same way that getting cancer is not yeah. your fault, exactly. or getting exactly. any imagine that's kind of one of the first things you have to kind of deal with, right? When you call yourself a bad person, yeah. honestly, that's really thought-provoking to think that you were walking around thinking that you're a bad person really? when because of oh yeah something you can't control yeah. yeah yeah and it doesn't make you a bad person no confidence you're not injuring anyone else i mean no, you just a- i mean literally if people are nasty to me or say something bad about me i'm just like mate it's nowhere near the stuff i tell myself all the time so you crack on seriously i'm my own worst enemy and i think that is something in the psyche of the addict and the alcoholic we have a self-hate mechanism constantly whirring around in your head and it's an inner monologue bullshit mm-hmm. it's really Alex hard Brown, I call yeah. it. it's telling me I'm not good enough have the drink take the drugs it's like just having a parasite brain. isn't it just, yeah, just, it's just knocking it's around just, if we're honest we've all probably got that internal monologue saying we can't do this or whatever I mean, but you probably must look at people yeah. you go, oh, you've got it together or this person's so good at that or we don't realise what's actually going on inside the head which is no of course we I mean, always assume that we're the person that is telling ourselves bad things but other people they look so composed and they look so confident and do you know what I mean? I mean, you must, you guys must observe a lot of personalities here when, 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 when you're in the red room of like grit, determination and people just giving up and, you know, but here is like, it's a, it's a really raw place to be. I really like it in here. And it's like you against yourself and the mirrors and the whole setup and the, literally the anonymity in here as well. You're just, mm-hmm. it's you and, and, and the treadmill and the trainer and it's a real intimate and it's, the best sort of like way for me if I'm super stressed I will always run if I'm really stressed and self-hating I'll come into barriers I mean you know what there's addiction there's things that happen in life certainly from my perspective getting in this space and like running and it's never about anyone else it's all about my own mental health really Mm-hmm. It is overcoming some demons, and I think a, I think a lot day, of a yeah, day. exactly. I think a lot of society have forgotten how to move and how to use that. And literally, over the past what two generations, we've stopped walking, we've stopped running, we've stopped hunting. You know, we stopped doing anything. And of course, all these chronic diseases are on the increase. And of course, depression is on the increase because guess what? If I run, my mood lifts. Freaking hell! Who knew? The last couple of years, we've been talking a lot about the kind of mental aspects of kind of doing a class or any kind of exercise. Uh, People always talk about the endorphin high, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, you put yourself under strain for an hour, you're going to feel endorphin rush. But like all the other stuff that's going on, like the dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, for just being around other people, and for like setting yourself a challenge and being able to accomplish it. But that's what back in the day we'd be doing exercise or having a more active life and getting that stuff more regularly. Nowadays, you're getting, you know, you're on the phone and that's where you get your dopamine from, right? You yeah. get a message and you look at it and you're like, oh, you get a little hit, unpopular. And, yeah. <laughs> and on Instagram, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's where people are replacing those kind of happy chemicals, but yeah. with devices or whatever. I always think that for exercise, just for one hour, just come and actually get. Well, it's amazing that over. one hour can affect a whole day. It can affect a whole week, let's yeah. face it. You know, if you start your week off or whatever by coming into a class like this or going for a run, or if you're not even up to that, going for a walk, you've achieved something that, you know, could set you on a trajectory of a fantastic week and keep you out of a pub, keep you out of a bar, keep you out. Do you, you have that on like your Sunday? So if both of your Sundays are like you're kind of like the, the day the where you feel. Day. Do you have something then you set up the week with? Do you do anything in particular? So, like, um, so like I always think oh, whenever people are talking about how to eat well or whatever, go and do your big sun, like shot on a Sunday for the week. So you go and like basically on a day when you're feeling positive about doing this stuff, go and buy all the food you need to buy. With, you make all the best decisions on the back of that, right? You're not going to be buying McCain's oven chips. You'll be buying stuff that you want. Load up in your kitchen and then throughout the rest of the week, anytime you could be making a bad decision, you open your cupboard, you've just got good stuff in there. And, so you see, and you're seething. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure that works for me. Because <laughs> <laughs> then I, I'll just sneak out and be like, oh. Stomp down the road. <laughs> no, I mean, you say that. So this morning, I've been, I've had a horrible cough, which has put me off. I haven't been able to do Barry's for a few days and it's, like, you know, I yeah. feel, I can really feel it. I can I don't feel it because I've, I've, I've done my hip in and I've not done any sort of like excessive running or or push myself at all. And it, I feel it as well. I can, you feel that claustrophobia in yeah. your head. Times that by about a million. And mm. that's what an addict feels like on a Tuesday. <laughs> that's literally how it is all the time. It's like a claustrophobic chlorine feeling. It's good. It's making me feel clammy just thinking about it. Yeah. 
So you're on, obviously traveling around around. Yeah, like how do you keep it? How do you kind of like? With great difficulty, actually. I mean, I've just been in China for six weeks. I've been away for three months. I was in Bali. I was in um, I was in Japan. It was like tough just not getting to meetings. That was it. Like I actually felt really strong, like mentally, when I was out there. I didn't feel like I was going to relapse. And bearing in mind, so I'm like five months. I was two two and a half months back in the room, so I was very vulnerable. And I was like, I don't know if I can go away for three months with my job. I don't know if I, I if I even want to risk it, because I believe if I was out and I relapsed in China, I would have been out. I wouldn't have got back in because it t- took a lot of strength for me to get pull myself back together and go back into the rooms and get clean, stay clean again, and get clean. But yeah, it was, it was really, really challenging. I mean, I'm going to LA with the show, which will be great. I mean, the it's recovery great. I mean, in LA they love it. I think people amazing. who aren't even addicted just love it there anyway, yeah. don't they? You know, they're so into it. Yeah. You know, you'll have a great time. Um, and it's literally like a who's who in LA over there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, the tour, like, it was just very challenging because I, I really try and put my recovery first before anything. Like I said, it was the, really the best thing that ever happened to me. So even before work, I have to really think about before accepting a job, especially a big job like this one a year and a half contract, traveling around weekly, you know, um, a different city in China, getting on a flight every week. It was just really mental. And I really had to think about what I was getting into. Because for me, I've got to really take it seriously. Like, like, like we've said, and we're not like our friends. We're not like you two. And like, it's so funny, actually, before this, before we started recording, when we were chatting, I just really felt like I was already on a level. Like the things you were saying, I just, it's like an addict. Yeah, it just totally clicked. Weird, yeah, no, weird, like, I was just, you were just it, saying, like, we only just met and I said, uh, you know, let, let's face it, we can't do anything in moderation. No, I can't yeah. do Barry's in moderation. I can't do quinoa in moderation. <laughs> I can't do Netflix in moderation. Yeah. For the love of God, you're always an addict. So it's always there. The reminder's always it's there. Really just watch comforting. what you're doing it's really and you'll be com- doing something over the top. Yeah. Even if it's just shopping online, you know, or yeah. buying supplements. But isn't I'm, it nice that there's people, there's yeah. lots of people there's like you. billions of us. Yeah, it's really Billions of people who've not admitted it to themselves and can't, it's not, it's, it's not the strongest position to be in when you have admitted it to yourself. The only person you can sort of like admit it to is another one, an addict or an alcoholic, because mm-hmm. there's still so much stigma around it. Like they have like cancer support groups and Alzheimer's support groups, you know. I mean, you, you're best of kind of sticking to your own at the moment because there is too much stigma around it. Because we don't get it, we don't understand it, you know. it's How, it's, how talking about stigma, how have your family, your workplace, I mean, clearly they all know and it's very yeah. open discussion with your family well yeah you know I was really I was really open with my family and I am still very open and really lucky and grateful that I am I never really had any problems with people they were especially my close friends because they saw how how really shit it was and even my family knew how horrendous it it got that they were really just so accepting Um, but I have addicts running in my family see it does run in the family absolutely absolutely right with that Um, Were, were you aware of that though yeah, right, okay. yeah, I knew. Do you think people that are, have an addiction uh, trait should be warning their children? Like, are you going to tell your children about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's you know, if like when my mum got breast cancer again, the first thing I did was have a BRCA, BRCA gene test, you know, and I don't carry it. And if I had daughters, I'd check them. You know, I've got a genetic disease and my epigenetics have forced a perfect storm for me to never, ever leave a pub once I enter, you know. Mm. And of course they're on my radar. And what other parent would, doesn't want to make sure their kid's not got the, one of the most deadliest diseases on the planet? And I will tell them. But I mean, they're not going to drink. They're gonna, not, not going to grow up in a culture of drinking every Friday, Saturday and Sunday night with your parents at age 15 around a kitchen table as the norm. You know, it was great fun, but that could have been the seed that sowed this beautiful lawn you see here. <laughs> There's no alcohol in my house and we don't celebrate with alcohol. We don't commiserate with alcohol. You know, if I'm stressed, I jump on the park and I run. Hopefully I'm giving them confidence and a complete lack of shame around it. So it's nothing. So if they do feel themselves getting out of control, say, right, let's nip this in the bud. Let's, let's do X, Y, and Z. Let's put this in place. Let's change your diet. Let's have a look at your genes. Let's see what we can do to navigate this. Let's change your lifestyle a bit. Yeah, I would be, if I had kids, I would be, all I would ask is honesty. Because that's what my parents did for me. And I, I feel like I could talk to them about anything. And that's one amazing thing that they've, that they've done for me and I would just ask them to be really honest I can't stop them from trying things nor do I want to actually I, you know I've got to give them the freedom but I will I will be totally honest if I have kids with what the disease I have and why I don't drink and why I don't you know use and is it being is being honest though on the flip side of that the hardest thing because I assume as soon as you 
well, you both said that you didn't want to accept you had a problem, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because you've got to give up. Right. Because it's your best friend. It's the only so thing on the planet that makes you feel human. It's your identity human. as well. That's but it makes you feel human. So, so when I had a drink... About, and, like, no, because if you do that, then then, you, then the only thing that's keeping you alive has is gone. Yeah. It's also terrifying to think, when I was like, for me to go out and not drink, for me to go out and not take drugs, that thought was terrifying. And I had gone week in and week out saying that I was going to stop and being a liability. So I actually kept my sobriety really quiet for, for a fair few months because I was just a liar, you know, and people, and people were like, oh, he's, he won't stick to that, you know. Um, it is hard being honest, honest and open-minded and willing. So I think we, we, we're going to have to like wrap up all this amazing chat, oh. but we're going to wrap it up in a really fun way, which is in kind of true Barry style. And we're going to get some high endorphins going. If you don't mind not at all and we're going to fire our 10 hot berries questions at you oh, as we have to <laughs> don't freak challenge? out What's no pressure challenge? bicycle crunches no we've done bikes it's going to oh. have to be squat jumps on your toe we want you to do like a, a good ballet one. Oh right okay D you can do whatever oh god well, he, he's not professionally trained and the added demand you're not going to be the best forget it forget it it's quick fire round so you are under time Meggie's going to time you she's just there with her watch and you're trying to beat all the other people that are coming on this po- podcast, so you've got to answer the questions under under duress. So I'm going to okay, give you your countdown. You ready? Goodness yeah. we they're actually <laughs> limbering up right here. Right, in three, two, one. Funniest Barry's moment. Um, oh, nearly face planting. What gets you through the final sprint? Uh, determination. Barry's crush. Oh, he was, he was here doing Julia. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry, Sandy. Yeah, of course, Natalie. You. Uh, who's your favourite instructor? Oh, Jen uh, McKenzie Brown. So, oh, what? Barry's pet peeve. Um. Oh, no! Oh, no! Yeah, doing this burpees, for God's sake! Favourite Barry's day of the week? Oh, um, um, chest, back, and abs. Guilty pleasure. Oh, having two basically airs. <laughs> Worst habit in life? Worst habit in life? Yeah. Um, being lazy. Oh. Secret trick. Jesus. Oh, yeah, cryotherapy. Oh. Uh, and a fact no one knows about you. Um, my mum ran me over when I was eight. Oh. <laughs> and we need to know your one. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've not got one. <laughs> <laughs> got me oh, everyone knows everything Every- about me. I'm an open book. It's disgusting. Good. A minute and three seconds. Oh. Recover now. Well done. Exercise and think. <laughs> Great job, guys. That was so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Honestly.